I'm John Crawl. Today, on this special recorded No Limits, we're going to talk with noted Indiana historian and author Ray Boomauer about his new book, Indiana Originals. It explores the lives and experiences of distinctive figures who've made contributions to Indiana history. Because this is a recorded program, we are not able to take calls, emails, or deal with your questions or comments via social media, but we do hope that you will enjoy this conversation. Now, this news. Welcome to No Limits. I'm John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. This is a special recorded No Limits. We're going to be talking with Indiana historian and author Ray Boomauer about his new book, Indiana Originals. Because it is a recorded program, we're not able to take calls, emails, or questions, comments uh, via social media, but we hope you enjoy the conversation. Ray, welcome back to the program. Pleasure to be back and to talk to you once again more about Indiana history and some of the fascinating figures from our 19th state. Well, and this is uh, this book, and I, I'll, I'll start. I said off the, before we went on the air that I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, I'll say that to the audience, too. It's a, it Thank is, you. It is a fun read. Um, it's a little bit different from the other books you have done in that there's not a central focus to it. I mean, there's an overarching theme. Um, but, uh, but really this is like, uh, if, if the others are three act dramas, this is more a series of vignettes. Vignettes is a good way to describe it. I realize that, uh, I've been involved in Indiana history for more than 30 years now. And looking back, I've written about a variety of, uh, individuals from the state, uh, those who are well known or those who are not as well known. And I thought it was time to kind of put together a book uh, featuring some of my pieces uh, over the years. And I was lucky enough to have the History Press agree with me uh, that Mm -hmm. it was a project they wanted to support. And um, I wanted to, you know, get more people to know about some of the fascinating people from uh, Indiana, uh, people that uh, they should know more about, and uh, also to tell my own story of how I got involved in uh, writing about Indiana history and my journey uh, from, you know, a third-grade student who developed a a love Mm -hmm. of history and particularly a love of biography and how Mm -hmm. I turned that into a pretty substantial writing career, I like to think. Yeah, I love the shout-out in the book you gave to at least those of my vintage referred to as the Orange Books. The Orange Books, yes, (laughs) uh, from Bob's Merrill Publishing House of Indianapolis. they were the childhood of a, a famous American series, and I also want to give a shout-out to my third-grade teacher, uh, Miss Patricia Swarm. Don't know if she's still around, but if she is, uh, God bless her, because uh, she really set me on the path to where I am today, someone who's been involved with Indiana history for more than three decades, and uh, you know, steered me toward that uh, bookcase in our library at Mary Phillips Elementary School in Mishawaka. Yeah pointing me out to these the series. And uh, as you remember, there were orange-colored oh, yeah. covers at That's that time. That's how everyone referred mm-hmm. to them, as the, the orange, orange books. books. Right. And yeah, there was a whole series of A whole of, series uh, on a variety of uh, figures from American history. And I gravitated toward uh, more the sports. You know, I was a young kid who yeah. loved baseball, so I gravitated toward the books on Luke Gehrig, uh, yeah. Babe Ruth, but there were other figures as well. And they were fascinating narratives that really got you interested in history and the stories of the figures who had uh, had an impact on our nation's heritage. And it really got me to think more about possibly writing something mm. of that sort in the future. Was it, uh, and we're going to dive into the book, don't worry, in, in a bit, but uh, that part of the story I think is also is also fascinating. Was it the history part of that equation or the Indiana part of the equation that drew you first, and why? 
first it was just history uh, and also stories, uh, a, a fascinating narrative. You know, uh, one of the things that I always like to tell anyone who's interested in writing history or writing for Traces Magazine, which I edit for the Indiana Historical Society, is uh, to think always of the reader. You know, you have to have them paramount in your mind when you sit down to produce a piece of writing. Uh, Catherine Drinker Bowen, who was a famous mm. biographer, said, you know, will the reader turn the page? That's the mm. question you have to keep foremost in your mind as you're uh, tackling any writing project. And so for me, uh, the story and the field of history uh, was were my first really big influences. Then what pulled you in to saying, okay, I'm going to make my specialty Indiana history or Indiana figures. Well, that's a long and strange tale. That's okay. Uh, course, we got an hour. Got we an got an hour. hour so you know, I started out as a reporter, uh, mm. a, a newspaper reporter. Uh, I studied journalism at Indiana University, worked on the Indiana Daily Student newspaper, and really got my start on a small town, Indiana Daily, up in Rensselaer, Indiana, in the northwest part of the state. And I must say, if you want to become a writer, uh, a great training ground would be to work on a small town daily newspaper because you write about everything. You have to because they don't have a big staff like a lot of big city dailies. So you have to cover everything from uh, the police run, uh, fire mm-hmm. runs, covering volleyball matches at the local high school, uh, events at, at the county fair, man-on-the-street interviews. At that time, I had to take photographs, develop them in an old-fashioned darkroom. This was mm-hmm. the age before digital photography. Um, print them out, help paste up uh, the actual newspaper in the back shop. Mm-hmm. So it was just a great training ground for all kinds of uh, duties that you would need to do as a writer. And also, uh, you know, dealing with deadlines. You had daily mm-hmm. deadlines you had to meet, and that's something that any writer has to tackle on a day-to-day basis as well. And it's not like you're detached from your audience in that environment either way. Not at all, no. You're, you're running into them in the grocery store. In the grocery store, on the street, uh, yeah. through phone calls, irate uh, subscribers who might be worried about deliveries, uh, not uh, showing up at the right time or in the wrong place uh, at their home. So you got to uh, deal with the public on a day-to-day basis as well. And and get used yeah. to talking to people, interviewing them, and telling their stories. So, what were the lessons that uh, that your days as a as a reporter carried over? What lessons did you draw from that experience that you've used as a historian? I think that the uh, truth is always important. That you have to listen to all sides uh, on an issue, but uh, in the end. Uh, when you're uh, dealing with uh, the public, they have to know that you're listening to them. And uh, that's something I think is also paramount in uh, paramount in telling uh, someone's story when you're writing history as well. You have to dig into all relevant materials, talk to people, and uh, get the whole story. And sometimes that story is not particularly pretty or uh, particularly appealing to, uh, to the subject you're writing about. But you want to get that overall picture uh, so you know that when a reader sits down to look at what you've written, they're getting the whole story. That's something I've tried to do in everything I've done about history that I've written about. Why would you make the decision to leave, uh, to leave reporting? Well, reporting, as you probably well know, is uh, yeah. not the best-paying job in the world. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend from Indiana University, Ron Newland, who worked at the Indiana State Museum, uh, told me about a job opening there in public relations. And uh, it was uh, you know, a field I've always been interested in, history. Mm-hmm. So I moved over there. And from there, that led me to a long career since 1987 uh, at the Indiana Historical Society here in Indianapolis, first as their uh, public relations coordinator. And since 1999, as editor of the Popular History magazine, that's the benefit of membership in the Society Traces of Indiana and Midwestern History. And uh, that's been a great place uh, to learn more about Indiana mm-hmm. history and also to work with a variety of writers over the years who've made that field so interesting. Most, uh, most of the pieces that appear in, in your book actually appeared in Traces first. A correct? wide variety of them, that's true. Uh, I've also written for some other publications, including Outdoor Indiana, mm-hmm. Indiana Magazine of History. Uh, but uh, 
traces is really where most of my work has appeared, and I've been lucky enough to, uh, to have it featured there. I was lucky to um, have an early mentor, uh, Kent Calder, who was mm-hmm. the editor of Traces Magazine for his first decade of existence, and also uh, his uh, fellow editors on the magazine, including Megan McKee. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the uh, key pieces of advice that I give to any writer is to uh, marry an editor, and that's what <laughs> I did. Uh, we, Megan and I met at uh, working at the Indiana Historical Society. Uh, we've been married now for uh, almost 30 years, and uh, she's really been my editor for all mm-hmm. of my books and all my writing projects. So I know that's probably not uh, something that a lot of people can do, but <laughs> marrying an, an, an editor has worked out well for me. <laughs> if you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, Indiana historian and author Ray Boomauer about his new book, Indiana Originals. This is a recorded program, which means we're not able to take uh, questions or comments by phone, email, or through social media, but we hope you're enjoying the conversation. So uh, a lot of these pieces, and you know, uh, I could describe the book. I've already said it's a series of vignettes. Mm-hmm. Um, another way is uh, profiles in miniature in some ways. Exactly. Uh, uh, of India. How did you select the the people that you were going to profile in the book? Well, I turned to, uh, you know, what I've written for uh, Traces, and I tried to have a, a good mix of uh, individuals that uh, a lot of people know mm-hmm. about, people like uh, Gus Grissom, uh, Booth Targington, uh, Ernie Pyle, but also uh, little-known people who've made an impact on Indiana history uh, that uh, more people should uh, know more about, including uh, Matty Coney, who was very involved in the Citizens Forum uh, movement in the civil rights era in uh, Indianapolis. Uh, Janet Flanner, who a lot of people naturally might know through her work with mm. The New Yorker, uh, but a lot of people don't know that, you know, she was from Indianapolis. And related to the Flanner. Related to the Flanner. Uh, and Buchanan. Home. Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut told me once that uh, you may have heard this story, okay. probably have, that uh, when she died, he, he had to call the star, and th- at least in Kurt's telling, was that the star wasn't going to do an obit <laughs> until, until he mentioned that, that she was part That's of right. the Flanner and Buchanan. So anyhow, I'm sorry, I That's cut right. you off. And also, people that always fascinated me were the earlier uh, historians who made Indiana history their uh, field of expertise including the, the subject of my first book, uh, Jacob Pye Dunn, Jr., who was an Indiana historian and very influential in getting the Indiana Historical Society revitalized in the 1880s. And a particular favorite of mine, George S. Cotman, who was a kind of a self-trained historian, mm-hmm. uh, traveled around on bicycle, uh, collecting bits and pieces of uh, trivia uh, about Indiana history and had the audacity to, without any really uh, a college degree, just experience as a, a, in the printer's office, to start his own magazine in 1905, the Indiana Magazine of History, uh, which is still around today. So he really had a great idea. Was that part of the biggest satisfaction uh, for, in doing this book and presumably doing the original pieces is you were pulling up some of these forgotten figures, bringing them back to the surface? Uh, that was a, a great uh, part of doing that kind of writing and also telling stories of uh, people who might be well-known, but you might have not known something about a particular aspect of their life. I'm thinking of Booth Tarkington in particular. A lot of people know about his, you know, writing career, but uh, I don't think a lot of people know that he ran for political office and actually won a seat in the state legislature as a state rep uh, early in his uh, career. And although he was kind of uh, laughed at at the time, was a, quite an effective uh, legislator during yeah, his two years in office. Yeah, he had kind of a significant showdown with the governor. With the governor of his time. own party. He took on the governor and uh, and actually uh, beat him. And those are normally not fights that first-term legislators no. win. How did he do that? I think he showed great perseverance. He knew he was uh, right on the issue. Uh, and uh, persevered and wasn't afraid of what the political repercussions might be, I think, because, of course, he had a career to fall back on. He'd already had some uh, pieces published at that time. So uh, that was uh, something that I think some politicians today don't have. 
that luxury that Booth did back then. If you are just joining us, we are talking with Indiana author and historian uh, Ray Boomauer about his new book, Indiana Originals, it's a series of profiles of interesting Hoosiers from, from the past. This is a recorded program, and that means that we are not able to take your questions or your comments or share your stories by phone or by email or through social media. But we do hope that you are enjoying the conversation. I am John Crawl. You're listening to No Limits. Please stay with us. Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the StatehouseFile.com, and your host. We're talking today in this recorded No Limits with Indiana author and historian Ray Boomauer about his new book, Indiana Originals. Because this is a recorded program, we cannot take your questions or comments uh, by phone, by email, or through social media, Facebook or or Twitter. But we do hope you're enjoying the conversation. So we we were talking about some of the more um, obscure figures, uh, the ones that you, know, you had to drag back to the surface of, of consciousness in Indiana's history. There are also some really prominent ones. You know, we mentioned Kurt Vonnegut in a different context is in there. Wendell Wilkie is in there. Gus Grissom is in there. Uh, Booth Tarkington is in there. Was it difficult breathing new life into their stories? Because people do know and in the case of Vonnegut and, and to some degree Tarkington, they'd written so much themselves that people know them through the books already. That's why I think you have to, and what I tried to do, is take a piece of their life story that is not as well known as as most of their other uh, attributes and uh, focus on that as I did, and as we discussing earlier about uh, Booth Tarkington. And also with uh, Kurt Vonnegut, of course, he's well known, uh, but... You know what was the genesis behind mm-hmm. how he came to write Slaughterhouse Five? That Slaughterhouse Five is most famous mm-hmm. book, and it came out of his experiences in, in World War II, of course, as a prisoner of war during the the Battle of the Bulge. So I kind of delved into that and the influence that growing up here in Indianapolis uh, had on his life, uh, not only on uh, his work but his. Uh, um, you know his his entire existence uh, as mm-hmm. it was, and what made him uh, what he was as a man and as a writer. And uh, with other individuals, um, it was easy, particularly with like someone like Ernie Pyle, who has been mm-hmm. someone that really has been a big part of my life ever since uh, my days as a. Uh, in Ernie as a reporter in, in Ernie uh, Pyle Hall, Ernie right? Pyle Hall at, yeah. at Indiana University, and. Uh, I must admit, I did know a lot about Ernie Powell when I first went to Bloomington uh, as a young student. But he's a, a big part of that. If you're a journalism student back then, mm-hmm. you know, you had classes in Ernie Pyle Hall. On the second floor, there was a kind of a a break room that had a lot of mm-hmm. his memorabilia in it. And so he was always someone, you know, that uh, was a part of your existence if you were a journalism major back then. And it was easy to uh, look at different aspects of his life. In this book, I talk about how he came to write his famous column about uh, Captain mm-hmm. Waskow and his death and during the fighting in Italy during World War II. And I also focus on an aspect of his life that fascinated me and the fact that a lot of people know during about his fame mm-hmm. because of his becoming such a spokesman for the average GI during World War II. Uh, but even before that time, he had a national reputation as a kind of a, a roving vagabond correspondent mm-hmm. for the Scripps Howard newspaper chain. You know, that's where his columns started uh, before his columns of World War II. You know, he traveled around the country, uh, kind of the—he was Charles mm-hmm. Corral before there was a Charles mm-hmm. Corral, if you remember, on the road. And uh, his column was really very popular. It was written during a— Grim time during the Great Depression, the mm-hmm. Dust Bowl era of American history. 
And a lot of people turn to his column for respite from their hard times. Mm. Uh, they got a laugh. They found something interesting that uh, encouraged them to forget their troubles for a time. And it was really fascinating in doing research at the Ernie Pyle uh, home in Dana. And there were these letters from editors at a variety of Scripps Howard newspapers around the country, you know, writing him, thanking him for his mm -hmm. columns and saying it was the uh, most popular part of their newspaper. And if they ever canceled his column, they'd have irate subscribers canceling their subscriptions right and left. And that's something I didn't know about his life before I started doing research and writing about him. Why did you decide, because he's he's the only figure in the book who has two chapters, or two vignettes, two pro... Why did you figure... Why did you decide to to break out um, the you know the roving correspondent? By the way, that's a job no news organization has anymore, right, unfortunately, right. because of budgets. Uh, but uh, from the the war war stuff, because I thought it was an aspect of his life that needed to be better known, mm -hmm. and it's something that fascinated me. And I've found over the years that something uh, that I find interesting might then be of interest to. Uh, other people from from the state, and uh, I always like to when I talk to potential writers for mm -hmm. Traces magazine, and they want to know, you know, what are you looking for? You know, what's going to get your attention mm -hmm. uh, that I have a leg up on getting my piece in a future issue of the magazine? And you know, I'm tell them that I'm looking for kind of that, wow, I didn't know that moment in mm -hmm. a piece, that I want a piece of writing that. If you're sitting down to read it at your dinner table, at any time, you know, mm -hmm. these are pieces that stand the test of time, uh, that you're going to say, wow, I didn't know that about this person or that person or about this event or that event. And that's what I tried to do in my own writing as well. We are talking uh, with Indiana author and historian Ray Boomauer in the special recorded No Limits. Because it's a recorded program, we're not taking calls, emails, or uh, Messages via social media. We hope, though, that you are enjoying the discussion. So, you know, with these, since a lot of these were products of, of magazine pieces you'd done, were the magazine pieces the ones that you, you know, were you able to, always able to select the subject, or were some of them suggested or, or chosen for you? Um, these are all pieces that I've selected, and um, they're not always exactly what they were in the magazine. Some mm -hmm. have been, you know, trimmed down a bit mm -hmm. uh, for easier reading. A lot of the pieces were longer uh, originally, but I have to take into consideration people's time today mm -hmm. with their busy schedules. And but I think the uh, the gist of uh, what I've written originally is is contained in the pieces that are that are in the book as well. And how did you go about selecting uh, these? Presumably, are not all the pieces you've written through the year. How no. did you go about selecting the ones that you did include? I concentrated because, the, of course, the book's title is Indiana uh, Originals, Hoosier Heroes and Heroines, on strictly uh, the biographical pieces that I've mm -hmm. uh, done over the years. Bi biography is a subject that has fascinated me, uh, and uh, it's taken up a lot of my, my writing time over the years. So that's what I concentrated on in selecting pieces uh, for this book. Uh, if there are other pieces I've written, like about the celebration of the state centennial, uh, about a racial incident at Freeman Field in Seymour, Indiana during World War II, uh, about a visit by uh, the Marquis de Lafayette to Indiana where his steamboat uh, hit a snag and sank on the Ohio River, mm -hmm. uh, that might be um, better for a book in the future, perhaps, uh, but for Indiana Originals, I concentrated on just biographical pieces. And how did you select when, since you get to choose, got to choose your subjects, what was the process that went into saying, oh, okay, I want to write about George Coffin, or I want to write about, uh, you know, um, Alex Frashew, or mm -hmm. any of the other figures who were in there? I think for any writer, particularly if you're doing biography, you have to have uh, some kind of personal connection to the subject you're writing about, about. I always bring up a story that David McCullough told when he, before his Truman biography came out. Uh, before that, he was contracted to write a biography of uh, Pablo Picasso. But in doing his research and taking some time uh, to look into Picasso's life, 
he discovered that he couldn't stand his subject mm. and begged his publisher to, you know, let me out of this, let me look at something else. And they said, sure. And he picked Truman and found a, a real fascination with the subject, uh, some personal connections uh, with Harry Truman. And it turned out great for him, you know, mm-hmm. Peel's Surprise, a, a best-selling book. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to have to have some kind of personal connections. You're not going to agree with everything your subject has done. Uh, no one's perfect. But you're going to have to have some kind of respect and ability to connect with them. And that's something that I try to keep in mind when I'm uh, picking a subject. So you'll see a, a lot of World War II-related pieces mm-hmm. in the book because I have an interest in World War II uh, particularly in the Pacific Theater. Mm-hmm. That's why there are pieces on uh, fighter ace Alex mm-hmm. Verschu. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a piece on um, uh, General Shoup mm-hmm. and his um, heroism at the Battle of Tarawa during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of pieces about the journalists because I was an mm-hmm. ex-reporter. So there's pieces including the ones about Jacob Dunn, George Cotman, Indiana historians. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of connections that I make with these individuals that I write about. Who was the hardest subject uh, for you to form that connection with and why? The hardest subject to make those connections probably and uh, not because of any problem with her, but with Juliet Strauss, mm-hmm. who was a, um, a newspaper columnist for her hometown newspaper in Rockville, Indiana, had a weekly column in Indianapolis News and a national column in the Ladies' Home Journal. So I could make those connections. But the problem was that she didn't leave behind a large collection of papers that were, you know, preserved Mm -hmm. in the archives. Outside of what she did deliberately for her audience. So I had to go back, go through newspaper microfilms, microfilms and the copies of the old Ladies' Home Journals and, you know, take apart uh, what she wrote about herself personally and her life story and those pieces over the years to get her own story. So, you know, often you hear a lot of uh, older historians say, you know, no documents, no history. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that's true. Uh, And it's much easier if you can go to an archives and they have these cataloged collections Mm -hmm. of an individual's papers to go through and you have a collection guide to go by. Uh, it's harder when someone doesn't leave those papers behind. Do you worry, if I'm going to stray off the subject of the book here, but that's fast. Do you worry a bit because we're a, a far less paper-driven society than than we once were that, you know, I mean, we communicate through text, through all this electronic. A lot of it can be deleted or dispensed with, and you have to have the person's I don't envy future historians, historians and writers trying to, trying to what get out, you know, dig into and get the information they need for you know writing their own histories and the history of their own times. Uh, I'm, I've kind of caught myself lucky that I'm I'm not going to be around for that, having to do that kind of uh, kind of work. I've been lucky to be able to go to archives and have the actual documents, and there's always the thrill of actually touching the piece of mm-hmm. paper that your subject has handled in his or her life as well. And you don't have that with, with the digital archives. What's been the biggest thrill with that? Uh, you know, because you've done, you know, this is your 15th book, right? That's right. Correct. So uh, you've done a number and you've done biographies of, you know, the most recent one, the last time you were on this show was John Bartlow Martin and, and all of that, an Indiana reporter who was probably right. the hottest reporter in the country of his time and, and now is a little bit forgotten. But that moment of discovery when when you mm-hmm. you touch something and you feel that sense of connection, what's the greatest one in those 15 books, would you say? You brought up Martin. It's probably John Bartlow Martin just telling his, his story uh, over the years. You know, it started out, I was at an um, induction ceremony for the Indiana Journalism uh, Hall of Fame, and, you know, Martin's name came up. And uh, I saw a photograph in our uh, collection at the Indiana Historical Society of Robert F. Kennedy giving his famous April 4th, 1968 speech here mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. Which is the subject of another, subject of another book of mine. Yeah, yeah. But that led me into, in, you know, John Bartlett Martin was involved in that campaign and in, involved in the old Indianapolis Times newspaper, was a speechwriter for every Democratic presidential candidate from 
Adlai Stevenson in 1952 all the way up to George McGovern in 1972. And so his story really intrigued me and fascinated me. Here's a guy who grew up during the Great Depression in, in the mean streets of Indianapolis, as he called them, and uh, was able to rise up, uh, become a reporter, work for a variety of Democratic presidential candidates, work for the Kennedy administration. So being able to tell his story was Even became fascinating. became an ambassador. Ambassador right? Dominican Republic as well during the John Kennedy administration. And being able to, you know, get a, some research grants to, you know, write a trace mm-hmm. piece about him and then down the road to stretch that out into a full-scale biography was a, a great part of my career. What was the difference? Uh, because he is a, a vignette, a profile in a minute. What was the difference in doing kind of the profile in miniature and doing the full book treatment on on him? I mean, how did you approach the tasks? When you're doing a, a magazine piece, you can kind of massage it uh, into the areas that you're most interested in mm-hmm. and keep it away from the areas that you're not as uh, familiar with mm-hmm. and uh, expertise in, have expertise in. And, and when you're doing a full-scale biography, uh, you're going to have to touch every aspect of their life. And I must admit that when I was writing about Martin, the most difficult part was uh, writing about his time as an ambassador to the Dominican Republic because I don't have that international expertise uh, in diplomatic history uh, that uh, some uh, academics might have. So it was tough uh, to write about uh, that aspect of his career. Uh, and otherwise, writing about his days as a reporter was easy because I was a reporter. I knew what he was doing as well. And I've also been kind of a, a freelance writer and a, and a writer for magazines as he was. Of the subjects in this book, is he the one you feel the, the closest sense of connection with? I think so, uh, with Martin, uh, because, you know, he started out as a hard scrapper reporter, left the field like I did because, you know, it didn't pay much. He had, mm-hmm. had a lot of, uh, you know great times as a reporter, and it really helped him in his subsequent career as a writer, but mm-hmm. it's just not a field that he could, felt that he could grow with. So he left that for the life of, of a freelancer in Chicago. Who are the others in the book that you felt a, a real sense of connection with? Well, George Cotman, I've talked about before, yeah. uh, Jacob Dunn, both of those um, who weren't academically trained historians. You know, I have a master's degree in U.S. history, but I don't have a doctorate in history, so I'm not really an academic. In academia, you don't have the union card. That's right. I'm I'm more of a public historian, like a lot of people are these days. So their uh, careers really intrigued me, how they were able to, you know, start out as maybe contributing uh, little vignettes for local newspapers and then grow that into a full-scale career writing Indiana history and dealing with Indiana history. With each of those figures, what was it that, was there something different about each of them that that was the point of connection for you? I think Jake Dunn's role in Indiana politics was also mm-hmm. a, a highlight for me, something that fascinated me as well. I've always been interested in uh, political history. And uh, he was, you know, a guy who not only wrote about political history, but actually, you know, ran for public office, Mm -hmm. served as a city controller, uh, was an advisor to uh, Indiana Governor Thomas Marshall. Uh, So he had uh, he was in the room when history was being made, which always fascinates me. If you're just joining us, we are talking with uh, Ray Boomhauer about his new book, Indiana Originals. This is a recorded program, so we're not taking uh, calls, emails, or social media messages. Um, And besides Juliet Strauss, was there anyone else in the book that you found difficult to connect with? No, I think because, you know, I try to write people I do have connections with that it wasn't as as difficult as as it might be because I'm always going to pick someone who is going to have those... Um, ability to uh, tell their life story uh, with a little more ease than usual. Again, we are talking with Indiana author and historian Ray Boomauer about his new book, Indiana Originals, because this is a recorded program. We're not able to take calls, emails, or messages via social media, but we hope you're enjoying the conversation. I am John Kroll. You're listening to No Limits. Please stay with us.
Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We are talking today in this special recorded No Limits with Indiana historian and author Ray Boomauer about his new book, Indiana Originals, also about his life and career as, as an historian. Uh, because this is a recorded program, we're not able to take questions or comments by phone, by email, or through social media, but we hope you're enjoying the conversation. So, Ray, one of the things I, I enjoyed seeing, uh, even though he is this really large figure, I think not just in Indiana history, but in American history, not a tremendous amount of... Uh, is written about him, or is he talked about all that much anymore? And that's Eugene Debs. And there's a chapter in in there, um, and I, I've got to admit, I find him one of the most fascinating figures in Indiana history. Because his influence is felt even today. Uh, yeah. If you're a, a working person, uh, a lot of the um, attributes of your job that you find uh, appealing, you know, the eight-hour workday, workman's compensation, were all things that Eugene Debs was fighting for many, many years ago. And he's a uh, someone who firmly believed in what he was doing and didn't let, uh, you know, a term in jail mm-hmm. uh, forestall him from doing what he thought was, was right, uh, was someone who was uh, beloved by many, many people uh, across the country yeah. and reviled by uh, others as well. But uh, uh, even though you didn't uh, might not agree with his politics, he was still beloved in Terre Haute, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a photograph, I think, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but I know it's in our collection at the Indiana Historical Society. There's a, it was a, uh, a woman in a booth in mm-hmm. downtown Terre Haute, and it's, the sign on the booth says, you know, Ireland is free, you know, why not Debs? This is when mm-hmm. he was incarcerated for speaking out against American participation in World War One, And it's fascinating to me that here's a guy who, while in jail, almost got a, a million people to vote for him in the 1920 presidential election, running uh, as a Socialist Party candidate. Well, there there's so many aspects of his life and career. I think that, you know, most people don't realize, and it's a piece you, you mention in the book, that he did serve uh, a term in the Indiana General Assembly. Mm-hmm. Gee, <laughs> he said famously is the only part of his public career he's ever ashamed of. <laughs> <laughs> that he was a member right. of the Indiana State Legislature. Uh, so Eugene Debs and Booth Targeting in both states. Yes, well, and that's the other yeah. thing is that, that that it's an odd thing. But I also, that, you know, I think the 1912 election is one of the most fascinating. And, you know, I, I've spent most of my life in, in covering politics in one one form or another if they're if there is one election I wish I could go back in time and cover and be able to see the principles, that probably would be it. That's right. You have Debs involved, uh, Thomas Marshall, also from uh, Indiana. And Marshall's another guy who I think is yeah. forgotten today, uh, probably uh, the wittiest vice president in American uh, history and uh, someone who had a very tough time in his job. Uh, when oh, yeah. Woodrow Wilson had his stroke, you know, yeah. um, there wasn't uh, the amendments we have today on presidential well, secession. Pro- so, product, really, of yeah, Wilson and, Wilson FDR, and, and right. FDR to exactly. some And, you know, uh, Wilson's wife kind of took over, you know, controlling her who would, could and could not see her husband. You know, and what was Marshall to do? You know, should he step up and try to take over and be seen as a usurper of mm-hmm. power, as, as he said? Or you know, take a back seat, and it was very trying times for the country and for Marshall himself. He was thrust into a situation he wasn't really prepared for. Well, and it's interesting because we we now think of uh, you know the the modern conception of the president and the the vice presidency is that that's a team that they work together and that there are very there is a a kind of relationship between the two principles there. Not, not so much in that so era. I mean, no. you 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 talk about not just. Uh, Marshall and Woodrow Wilson, and they sound like a spectacularly mismatched couple there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, maybe even worse and more distance were uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Fairbanks. And Fairbanks, and, right. Yeah. You know, back then, your your vice presidential candidate was often selected for kind of regional balance. Mm-hmm. It was seen, you know, Wilson's from the East Coast. Here's 
Marshall, Edwards successful Roosevelt. Indiana governor. Here's Roosevelt from the East Coast. Here's Fairbanks, a uh, conservative uh, Republican senator from from Indiana. And there's the whole uh, infamous cocktail affair here in How Indianapolis. How did you settle on that? Because that's not what I would have, you know, I, I know an awful lot of Indiana history, and that was a story I was not familiar with at all before I read this. I chose it because it was such a, it blew up at yeah. the time. You know, it, it dominated the Probably, news. Without giving too much of your book right. away, why don't you lay out for people really what happened there? Well, Roosevelt visited Indianapolis, and there was a uh, reception luncheon at the Fairbanks home in Indianapolis. And uh, Fairbanks was this teetotaling Methodist who, mm-hmm. who was, you know, against alcohol. And yet, you know, at this luncheon, not he, but... Meant, you know, alcohol was served uh, at the luncheon. And the media, as it sometimes is wont to do, kind of blew this up out mm-hmm. of all proportion. And it was a, a national story. And it really hurt uh, Fairbanks' reputation at the time. And it didn't help him with Roosevelt, and who he didn't have a great relationship anyway. Uh, they weren't, I don't think, temperamentally suited mm-hmm. for uh, each other, nor ideologically suited for one another. So it makes for a great story. Yeah, my favorite. Uh, I think it, it's from his daughter, Alice uh, Roosevelt Longworth, um, said of, of Teddy Roosevelt that he wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral, you know, right. the center of attention and the focus of, of mm-hmm. everything. So I can't imagine him sharing the stage too well with 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 anyone else. But I think the thing that I found fascinating about it and that you detail very well in there is that uh, I have to clean this up a little bit, but he was in a... a Fairbanks was in a darned if you do and darned if you don't situation mm-hmm. that that uh, he got lambasted first for not providing the cocktails right. and then lambasted for allowing them when they were provided. So it really was the guy could not win. There's something about being a vice president from Indiana. Uh, if if uh, Governor Pence had asked me, I would have advised against him becoming vice president. But Why is no that? one asked me. There seemed to be bad luck if you're a vice president from That's Indiana. Uh, of course, Skyler Colfax was implicated in a, a scandal when he was vice president. Uh, Marshall was seen even by his own president as a small caliber man, someone mm-hmm. who wasn't up to the job of being vice president. Mm-hmm. You had this whole th- cocktail affair with uh, Fairbanks. Uh, of course, we all know about Dan Quayle's many problems mm-hmm. with, with the national press. So it really hasn't turned out well for Indiana's vice presidents. You know, none has gone on to become president. Um, their careers after the vice president hadn't you know, lived up to the expectations. So but, you know, I wasn't asked, so I, I couldn't have given that advice. And yet Indiana's kind of known as the cradle of vice presidents, exactly. too, which mm-hmm. is odd because of that geographic balance mm-hmm. uh, question. So how did you go about, uh, you know, I mean, the, the stories that uh, that have, dis- you know, have sort of escaped into into folklore now, like uh, Wendell Wilkie's miraculous ascent to the Republican nomination in 1940. How did you go about trying to breathe new life into those? Well, Wilkie, it's it's easy because there are connections to today's politics. You have this unknown dark horse who yeah, has never run for— He's sort of like the inverse of Trump, though, exactly. in some ways. Yeah. Uh, a businessman who uh, ran for a public office, having never uh, achieved any uh, political office uh, before. Someone who is not seen as part of his party. Uh, I don't think Trump was seen by a lot of Republicans as a member of the Republican Party oh, yeah, before he were, ran. And Wendell Wilkie was a Democrat at one time. Before as was got, Trump. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Trump. Yeah, I mean, there were sort of hostile takeovers in, in both cases. But uh, how do you go about uh, to making that story fresh? Well, I think just the uh, hoopla and just the buzz and uh, the um, adulation that greeted Wilkie when he ran. Uh, particularly his famous notification ceremony uh, mm. in Elwood. Oh, yeah. Uh, when he came here, that was Huge. featured in national magazines, a famous photograph in Life magazine of throngs of people jamming the sidewalks to uh, welcome him back to Elwood as he's going down the street in open convertible waving to the crowd. Uh, just capturing the, the excitement and uh, the personal connections that uh, – voters had with the candidates back then, something that you couldn't do today, you know, hmm. this is before the days of Secret Service yeah. protection. And you can make, you could be up that close to the candidate that you can't today. So, uh, you know, with with this 
approach, and I'm, I'm thinking of a, a line in in the book that uh, that Kurt Vonnegut um, utters, where he says, I, "You know, I wrote for the students, not for it. it's who you who you write for." For a lot of uh, um, uh, your audience and your career, you've written for people who have a passionate interest in history. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. th- those who subscribe. To the magazine, by def- you know, they sort of self-select and say, mm-hmm. "Yes, you can write about these matters with uh, with a certain complexity." Um, but with a book, in theory, you're trying to reach a larger audience, um, one that's not not quite so self-selected. Is there a difference in tailoring the material for for the two audiences? There's a little difference, of course, a book is much longer, uh, but there's always a, a narrative spine, even uh, with my books. Uh, mm-hmm. I try to, when, I, when I'm doing a full-scale biography, of having each chapter almost stand alone, that you could take it out of the book and read it, put it back, and continue the flow, that uh, you could get something by just reading one chapter, uh, so that um, if you wanted to know just about this aspect of a person's life, you could take it out of the out of the mm-hmm. book and, and know more than you did before. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I consider myself a narrative historian, someone mm-hmm. who's telling uh, stories to people that might not have known this uh, part of a person's life before. Um, once again, you know, will the reader turn the page? I want them to keep turning those pages until the very end. And, and, and when they get to the end, of course, Every biographer knows that at the end their subject's going to die, mm-hmm. and I want them to feel the weight of that death as mm-hmm. as I do whenever I write about someone. What uh, what subjects in this book um, surprised you the most as you started going into the into the research? Because some of these figures, obviously, we all have preconceptions about because many of them have moved into the realm of folklore. One of the uh, individuals that surprised me the most because I didn't know much about her or anything about her at all before I tackled the subject was uh, May Wright Sewell, mm-hmm. who was an, an educator, uh, a women's rights pioneer, uh, a peace activist, uh, a teacher. Um, I didn't realize the full breadth of her achievements and the fact that she started a number of organizations that that are still around today, the Propylium, the Indianapolis mm-hmm. Women's Club. She was in on the, on the first of the Art Association of Indianapolis that grew into the Indianapolis Museum of Art today. The Contemporary Club is still going on. Just a breadth of her achievements and the uh, effect and the long-term impact she had on this city was just remarkable to me. And uh, nationally as well with their work uh, for on behalf of women's rights. And the fact that, you know, she persevered even though she was sometimes ridiculed for her beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this Indiana Originals book, I write about her time on the um, Henry Ford peace ship during mm-hmm. uh, the uh, World War I era before America got involved in the war. Uh, Henry Ford was uh, influenced to try to go to Europe with uh, various delegates, peace Mm -hmm. activists, to try to end the war in time for Christmas. And, of course, this was treated as mainly a big joke by a lot of the newspapers uh, of the time. Uh, But May Sewell was someone who truly believed in peace and Mm -hmm. was willing to put her uh, reputation on the line to work toward that. And although it was almost a fool's errand, at least she tried to do something to end the bloodshed in, in Europe at that time. And it's something I can respect her for today. Did you make a decision not to to uh, write or include uh, any figures who are still living? Was that a yes. conscious decision? Because I, I was thinking of the, the noted Hoosiers, uh, you know, Lee Hamilton right. might have figured, or Richard Luger. Or, well, recently deceased Andy Jacobs, Jr., those kinds of folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, I try to work with dead people quite a bit because they're easier to work with than those who are still alive. So it's like the sixth sense for you. That's right. Well, well, in part because you do know how the story ends, You know, the story ends. um, Sometimes uh, it's difficult to to work with people still alive, Uh, although that's a, a general rule I have. 
It can be broken from time to time. For example, when I wrote about Alex Fershu, the World War mm-hmm. II fighter ace, he was still alive at the time, and I was able to talk mm-hmm. to him personally and uh, get his reminiscences uh, for a youth biography I did on him. So it was that was a great experience, but usually that doesn't happen. There are sometimes difficulties in dealing with people who are still alive. And was the focus more on uh, Hoosiers who have made, you know, like there's not a there's not a chapter on Dillinger, for example. That's right. These are made, who made overall positive contributions, contributions to Indiana yeah, history. history. Not saying that, uh, you know, there are, there are books. We did a youth biography of, of, of Dillinger and his life, and it's a fascinating story, but it's not something that, that I've dealt with. I used to try to tell positive stories about Indiana, although there are ne- negative aspects with, with all of these pieces as well. We're starting to get a little bit close on time. Uh, so I'm going to ask, what's what's next in the works for you? What <laughs> When are we next going to have you back in here talking about, what would you say? Well, I've kind of uh, taken a look at a, a more of a national figure, a non-Hoosier, uh, another World War II correspondent. I had written a book uh, a year or two ago on Robert Sherrod, who was a, a World War II correspondent for Time magazine. And now I'm taking a look at another correspondent from the war, uh, Richard Tregesis, who was on Guadalcanal, wrote a best-selling book called Guadalcanal Diary, uh, was also in uh, Europe, was uh, mortally injured in uh, Italy, uh, went on to uh, cover the fighting uh, with uh, D-Day and into Germany as well, and was a fascinating uh, figure, uh, a war correspondent who, you know, told the folks back home what was going on with uh, their loved ones overseas. What drew you to him? I think I've always been fascinated by um, civilian correspondents in the war putting their life at risk, you know, being there at the front uh, with the soldiers, uh, right up, you know, near the front lines, uh, risking their lives to uh, tell the stories of the uh, uh, soldiers and airmen and uh, seamen as well. When do you anticipate uh, completing it? Still doing research. It's a long process. His uh, paper collections are in two spots at different uh, parts of the country. So I've uh, been to Boston to do some research in the archives at Boston University. His other set of papers is in Wyoming, so it's going to take me a while to get to them. Well, they're pretty places to go to. They're great places to to visit. That's one of the great parts of being a a researcher and writer. Well, do keep us posted on on that, and we'd love to have you come back in and talk about that. Also, I'd like to thank you for what's been a great conversation today. And again, I want to emphasize to to our listeners that it's a it's a really fine book, Indiana Originals. My guest today has been Ray Boomauer, uh, talking about his book, Indiana Originals. We will be back with a live show in the new year. I am John Crawl. You have been listening to No Limits. Thank you for joining us. No Limits is a production of 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, Indianapolis. Producers, Sarah Neal Estes, Roxana Caldwell, and Jill Sheridan. Interactive Media Coordinator, Scott McAllister. Technical Producers, Cedric Freeman and Chris Flood. And Board Engineer, Joe Hatcher. Emily Matheny screens our calls. No Limits is made available through IPBS, Indiana's public broadcasting stations.